I don't think I ever had a good handle on who my dad admired. I wish I did because I think it would have helped me understand more about him. I have some vague memory of him digging Jonas Salk, the scientist who cured polio, but who doesn't like a guy who cures polio? Anyway, now that I have my own children, it's important to me that they know who I admire in the world. The other day, for instance, in perhaps my best celebrity sighting, I ran into Colin Kaepernick coming out of a hotel. He walked by and I thought, is that Cap? Realizing it was, I pretty much ran after him. I told him what I'm sure he hears from many fathers, that I was grateful for what he is doing, the conversation he started, and for taking a stand by kneeling down. I told him that he's the guy I tell my kids about. He smiled, said thanks, and continued to his waiting SUV. There are few men and women out there in the world who I hold in such high esteem, in ways that I talk about with my kids, because they are the type of person I hope my kids will become. One of them is Tom Clicchio. You might know Tom as a stern but fair judge on Bravo's program Top Chef. That's where I first saw him. But he's also the restaurateur behind Kraft, one of New York's great restaurants, as well as the founder of Food Policy Action, an organization that tackles food policy in the halls of Congress. And he's been outspoken in Twitter and IRL for causes in which he deeply believes. Calicchio is also the father of three boys, and as the fallout continues from revelations of widespread sexual harassment in the restaurant industry, we spoke about how to raise woke boys and, you know, solve hunger while you're at it. Welcome to the Fowlery Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy yourself. I think what I like so much about that your story is, I think I, like many people, knew of you, Tom Colicchio, from Top Chef. Mm-hmm. So you were like this thing that you see on television. Right, right, right. And then to realize that at some point you were just a kid from Jersey. Right. At a pool club. At a pool club, cooking, cooking in, in shorts and no shoes, and, and getting paid very well under the table at the age of like I think it 14. Was 250 a it week. It was like or 275 something. a week yeah. under the table. It was, it was great. It was the best job I ever had. It really was. You know, that and the fact that the guy who ran the concession um, was from my town. It was about a you know, 25 minute drive from where I grew up in Elizabeth to Clark. And, and about the, the third day, I noticed that this guy was just freshly stoned. Like every day he picked me up. And so, like, the third or fourth day, I said, you know, you could, you could share that. <laughs> so, yeah, it turned out to be a pretty cool job. It's a good half-hour commute. Yeah, yeah, it was. One of the things uh, that's germane to this podcast about that is some of that story has to do with you discovering salt uh, by kind of stealing some steaks. Or Well, now you're, you're, you're morphing two stories because that Uh-oh. was in, actually that was in Think Like a Chef in the book. Okay. There was a little essay I did about salt. Yeah. And, but it was at the same club. You're, you're, you're right there. Yeah. Um, my dad had packed a cooler full of club steaks, I guess you call them. I don't know what they're little. It was for the family dinner. And uh, I kind of knew just from watching like people grill meat that it really doesn't look that hard. You put salt on it. You, you put it on a grill. You, you get the grill going. You put it on and you, you cook for a few minutes on each side and it's a steak. So I remember there was a, a fire already built up in like the, the, the picnic area. So I opened up the cooler and I was like, wow, there's a steak. I'm hungry. So I threw the steak on the grill and I looked at it. I said, hmm, it doesn't really taste right. And there was a thing of salt there. So I put a little salt on it. I was like, wow, this is really good. Put a little more salt on it. I said, this is better. I cooked another steak. Put some more salt on it. Wow, this is really good. Third steak went on. Finally, at some point, I'm just like hanging out. My dad came up and he's you know, getting ready to make dinner. And he's like, where's all the steaks? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> but it is yeah. also very scientifically minded. I mean, you were thinking like a chef. You're like, okay, I'm going to do a vertical, you know. I, I was thinking like an eater. Yeah. You know, because, because in a way, I was, I was consuming it. And I was like, this, this doesn't taste right. Something's wrong. And I was like, salt? Oh, yeah, I, okay. Yeah. What was your 
eating world like as a kid growing up? Oh, by the way, my guest is Tom Colicchio, world famous chef, uh, chef owner at Kraft and many other wonderful restaurants. What else? Top chef judge and founder of Food Policy Action. Mm-hmm which is a policy group, they're tackling issues not only of hunger, but general food oh, policy. Yeah, yeah, farming farming, and, and, and uh, food production, labeling, transparency in the food system, really just try, trying to, to, to deal with the issue of how do you make our food system more affordable, more accessible to more people. And um, a father of three. Father of three. So let's go back to- uh, And one dog. And one, and one dog. So go back to uh, your food world growing up. Yeah. So my, my mother and father were both pretty good cooks. My mom had probably, I don't know, maybe 20 recipes in her repertoire that she would go through. And, and every, every now and then we we get a curveball thrown in. My dad was one of those guys. He would go to a restaurant and come home and go, I had artichokes and I'm going to make them. Yeah. And he'd figure it out. Yeah. Um, what did he do? My, my dad was, well, when I was first born, he was a, he was a barber. He had a, a shop on Elizabeth Avenue in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And then- he sold the shop. I found out much later in life that I think he sold it to cover a gambling debt. Um, and then he became a correction officer in the county jail. Wow. Yeah. And your mom? My mom, um, the first job that I remember that she had out of the home, uh, and notice how I said out of the home because the job in the home is a job. She worked at a Kodak lab in developing film. Yeah. And then she took a job managing a school cafeteria. So she was involved in food. Oh, sure. In an institutional setting. Yeah. Well, she was involved in feeding a lot of, lot of hungry kids, actually. That's yeah. What she was involved in. in um, was that your school cafeteria? It, it, it was. It was a school that I eventually ended up going to. I, I went to a Catholic school for all through you know grammar school and then freshman year in high school. And then I ended up going to public school after that. In my fantasy life of Tom Colicchio's childhood, which is a weird thing to have, but- there's like this big raucous Sunday dinners with you know red sauce. And oh yeah, yeah. Well, gravy. We call gravy, it. We right, call it gravy. Sorry. See, see now sauce, sauce and gravy. There's a difference. You yeah. know, marinara is a sauce. Gravy, what we call in, in New Jersey, you know, growing up Italian American, that red sauce was gravy. But it's only gravy because we put meatballs and sausage and brioche and you know pork shoulder and stuff like that in there. So once if you look at the definition of gravy, it's a sauce made with meat drippings. Right. Those once they're in that red sauce, it's gravy. Right. So yeah, it's, <laughs> that's it's, my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> sauce with yeah. meat equals gravy. Exactly. So yeah, every Sunday we we had to be home every night for dinner. And Sunday we would actually have an early dinner, probably around 3 or 4 o'clock. Uh, we usually wake up Sunday mornings to my mom frying meatballs and she would always save us one for after church because you weren't allowed to eat before church back then. And um, for some religious doctrinal, absolutely, you couldn't eat at least an hour before you were receiving communion. Right. Um, you don't want the body of Christ to go onto a meatball. N- n- no, although <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, that's something like that. Yes, exactly. She would say it was a fried meatball before it actually went into the sauce, and so as soon as we got home, that's what we were able to eat. And and but you know, it was always you know, mac- we didn't call it pasta; it was macaroni. Yeah, macaroni, you know, and gravy, and there was always some sort of salad or. Um, Almost never a vegetable on the table for that meal. Yeah. Other relatives would stop by. It was an immediate family, a few relatives. We had one uh, relative, Uncle Jackie, who wasn't really my uncle. He was my, my father's best man. He became Uncle Jackie, who was a, a lifelong bachelor. Um, and uh, he would come over pretty much every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I wasn't that far off. No, it's, yeah, it's close. Um, so from the pool club to being what you are today, was it a straight line of being a chef? Did you detour? Were you quite sure that that's what you wanted? No, there, there were no detours at all. 
the only other job that I, I or not job, but something I was interested in was you know, one day I had some idea that I should be an oceanographer. I love the ocean. I used to fish a lot as a kid, still do. To take biology in sophomore year, you had to get permission from the teacher. And the teacher, you know, I was kind of a cut up and he's like, I don't watch with my class. <laughs> so so I couldn't take biology. So that was like, all right, well, I can't be an oceanographer. I can't take biology. biology so I'll stick with cooking. Uh, so thank you to that teacher yeah. for craft and everything that came from it. Yeah. So I, I no, but that that's it. You know, I planned on, on or thought about going to culinary school. My dad actually, uh, through a friend of his who was, did refrigeration work locally in restaurants, you know, knew of this culinary institute and so they, they checked it out. We looked at it, and you had to work in two restaurants before they would accept you back it, then. I don't was know. Was this CIA? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure it's still the case, but you had to work in two restaurants. And so my dad's friend, Phil Gersha, got us got me a job locally in a restaurant called Evelyn Seafood Restaurant. It was a big seafood restaurant. We would do, you know, 900, 1,000 covers on a Saturday night, you know, fried, broiled seafood. And, uh, not quite oceanographer, but not too far. Not, not too far away. Um, but that was that was my first real restaurant. Prior to that, I had worked at you know the snack bar, and I worked at a Burger King, where you know Burger King was coming to the neighborhood, and I was like, I know I'm getting this job. I'm the only kid here with experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and check uh, out the chops on that yeah, one. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was a broiler guy. I, I fed the burgers on one side of the conveyor belt and took them out the other <laughs> side. It's awesome. From Evelyn's, I worked there for about a year, maybe a year and a half, and, and worked you know every station. Um, learned how to open clams, started in the prep kitchen, um, you know, peeling hundreds of pounds of shrimp, literally hundreds of pounds of shrimp. So now, Chef, thanks not only to you, but, you know, obviously Top Chef had a big part in this, is a profession that people really aspire to. I don't know, when you were growing up, did you have support from your folks? And it sounds like you did. My dad suggested I become a chef. Yeah. And, you know, my dad, we didn't have any of these long, deep conversations, but somehow he instilled in all all of us, in my two brothers, you know, find something that you love to do and do it. My brother at a young age just loved statistics, loved math, became an accountant, and now he's, he's a CFO of a company. And uh, my younger brother, Pat, he was a gym rat, played basketball, played in college, and now he's coaching, and he coaches a, a program in Linden, New Jersey, that last season, it's a public school, they were ranked 13th in the country at one point. So uh, so we all followed our, our passion. So my dad, my dad suggested I become a chef. Do you feel like your dad followed his... No. Passion? A correction officer? No, he hated his job. But I think that that's why he recognized you had to find something you'd love to do. I want to cut to Tom Calico, successful chef. When you started broadening your purview from feeding people, which you've done very well at Quilted Giraffe, Gramercy Tavern, uh, then Craft, then all of the Craft children, mm-hmm. to thinking a little bit more about not only the people you feed, but how people eat in general. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think being a chef in New York, and, and not just myself, so many other chefs, we're, we're like the first responders when it comes to issues. You know, people call us up, can you cook at an event, and we're raising money for X, Y, and Z. And hunger was one of those issues that, that we always were, were very focused on, I imagine, because we all feed people for, for a living, so we feel everyone had a right to, to food and to be fed. And, uh, you know, I did work with uh, Share Our Strength uh, before it was No Kid Hungry, now it's Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry. Um, God's Love We Deliver, um, Food Bank of New York, uh, Meals on Wheels, and all these anti-hunger organizations. And I, and I thought I knew a bit about the issue um, until my, my wife was mentoring a young, a young uh, woman who had uh, lived in New York City, lived in a shelter, had some, we found out had some learning disabilities. We managed to get her into a private school setting. Your wife is? She's, her name is Lori Silverbush. She's a filmmaker, writer and filmmaker. And so, um, so we... Um, in New York City, if, if, if the kid had a learning disabilities and, and the, 
the school system can't meet the needs they have to pay for public for private school. So we got into a private school, and uh, within the first week, we got a phone call from the principal saying that this young woman was clearly hungry. Um, they didn't have a lunch program or a breakfast program in, a, in this private school. So she would come to our house. We'd send her home with food. We would, you know, take care of her. And, you know, it was, but it was always short-term. We knew the hunger was always there. And so my wife just came home one day and said, I need to explore this issue of hunger in this country. And very quickly... What we found out, a few things that were pretty pretty astonishing was that, one, there's hunger in every county in this country. At the time, it was about 50 million Americans that relied on food stamps to feed their family. That people are hungry in this country not because we don't have enough food, not because of uh, famine or, or drought or war. Uh, they're hungry because we don't have the political will to feed everyone. This was really became a policy issue and an issue of politics. Um, we also found out that back in the 70s, we actually addressed hunger in this country and pretty much got rid of it until the 80s. And what program was that? Well, what happened, there was a, fil- a film that came out on CBS called Hungry in America. And back then there were four, four stations to watch. And so a third of the country probably watched this. You know. There was an immediate response. I mean, they showed just abject you know, poverty and hunger in this country. Immediate response between um, two members, uh, two senators, Dole and McGovern, put together legislation that modernized the food safety net, signed into law by Richard Nixon. We pretty much got rid of hunger. And the three programs were the WIC program, the Women, Infant, and Children Feeding Program, uh, SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or now what we know as food stamps, yeah. um, and school lunch. And those are the three things that really, you know, uh, policy issues that uh, they were modernized that really fed the country. And we pretty much got rid of, of, of the majority of hunger. And then everything changed in the 80s. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Hum by Verizon. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Hum by Verizon. No one wants to be stranded on the side of the road, especially when you have little ones in the car. But since a road is an unpredictable place, it helps to have Hum by Verizon, the connected car system that assists and empowers drivers. Now you can check your car's health from your phone. And if you have questions, you can connect to a mechanics hotline for expert, unbiased advice, and even get quotes on repairs. Need help on the road? Hum works with a nationwide network of mechanics and can send a tow truck out to your location. And if Hum detects a crash, it can automatically notify emergency services. It's a smart way to stay on top of your car's health and keep your family safer on the road. Get Hum and get where you're going. Learn more at hum.com. As this is a fatherly podcast, one of the things I'm always interested in is how the intersection of being a father kind of encourages or allows to blossom or challenges what you're doing kind of with your life's work professionally. So you have three sons who range in age from 24 as the oldest to six. six. Do your ideas of hunger and your passion about the issue tie into having children of your own? Was it something that predates it? How does that talk a little bit about how those play no, it, together? It, it predates it, but put yourself in the shoes of a father that can't afford, for whatever reason, can't afford to feed their family. So, you know, for me, if you think about food and the power of food, uh, every celebration, every holiday, we celebrate with food, um, whether it's a wedding, even a funeral, whether it's the birth of a child, uh, you know, uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, obviously, um, you know, food. Every culture has, when you think about cultures, you think about food. You think about Japanese culture, you think about food. You think about Italian culture, you think about food. You think, you know, even Irish culture, there's, there's, there's decent food <laughs> yeah. there. Um, 
uh, well, you know, you think of St. Patrick's Day, you think corned beef and cabbage. Right. You, know, you really do. One day a year. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, but anyway, so culturally, you think about food and what it can, what it can do and how it actually brings people around a table. Well, what if you don't have that? What about that thing that we celebrate and celebrate with? All of a sudden, that becomes the enemy because you can't afford it. And think about the shame involved with not being able to feed your children. And think about the shame involved by having to, you know, having to, to you know, go on assistance to feed your family. Right. And so, so yeah, that, that informs me because as a father, I could think about if I couldn't do that, what would that do? Yeah. I mean, is that something you run away from as a father that you can't do that? Is it something that where, you know, you, do you not have those celebrations because you can't afford food? Right. And so do you not have culture now because you don't have food? Well, I mean, in a very real, in a very physical way, food is what you build on, right? To sure, food is energy, and then in a well, yeah, we're not even touching the nutrition piece, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, but then also from a cultural, just living standpoint, food is also what you build on, and that's kind of what you're saying. Well, you, for, yeah, you you build around that, right? So, I mean, for me, being so so closely associated with food my entire life, I can't imagine not enjoying food, not celebrating with food. But then again, could never even imagine not being able to afford food. And yes, in my family, we, you know, I shared a bedroom with two brothers growing up. We, I mean, I certainly remember times where, you know, it wasn't a, you know, clearly a fancy meal. It was, you know, whatever was in the refrigerator that night. And so, so yeah, so I, I, you know, know, I'm not that far away. I had family members that were on food stamps growing up. And and, and so, yeah, I'm not that far away. I mean, you know, experiencing that. I mean, you know, if my life could have taken a different turn at one point, I mean, I did a lot of stuff when I was young that could have really got me in trouble. And somehow I avoided it. But my life could have been very different. I could have been that person who, through circumstance or whatever, could have been there struggling. Yeah. It, and so, you know, for me, it's, it comes down to, you know, how empathetic can you be to someone? And then if you, if you can get there, then you can say, all right, let's fix this problem. Right. Because now if you look at the nutrition side of it, when 13 million children who are hungry going to school, even if it's not every kid that's school aid, so if it's 10 million, 9 million children, they can't learn. There was a study recently done where when kids get breakfast – in first period, so not even before school, in first period, math scores go up by 17%. Yeah. So and then you think about all the big problems in this country that could be solved through someone coming up with a great idea or, or being, you know, participating in, in society that we're letting out, we're, we're not, they, they can't fully realize their potential because they're not getting the proper nutrition when they're young. Did you have any hesitancy from being, you know, a fine dining chef? And I know you had other non-fine dining restaurants. Going from that dynamic to a more outspoken, and one of the things that I personally admire so much is how unafraid you are to take a stand. But did you have hesitancy going from that world into a world of policy, and not only policy, but I think that this is one of the the unfortunate parts about hunger is politics. Yeah, sure, I didn't, and, and but I have to say that you know doing the TV show really gave me that platform. In that soapbox, because without that, I don't think my voice would have been as amplified. And so, when 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 was that a plan or no? A few things happened at the same time. I didn't want to do TV, and then when I agreed to do it, it was right. Also, maybe a few years later, when my, when my wife did the film, and because we actually looked at this and said this is a political issue, and we brought the film around the country and talked about it, it put the, me squarely. The film is called camp, a, a Place to the Table. A Place to the Table, and it's yeah. about hunger issues. It's about hunger issues. You can still see it on Netflix. Yeah. Um, and we're about to launch a, a campaign around the film based on some of the messages around the film. But no, I, I it didn't, you know, the first the first bit of policy that I had to deal with, I was asked to appear um, in a committee to testify around school lunch. And I was 
scared to death, actually. I remember walking into George Miller, who was a congressman from, from California, retired a couple of years back. It was his committee. I met him right before, and you walk right from his office into the chamber, and I was alongside of Secretary Vilsack um, and a general from Mission Readiness who testified, and then someone from the Heritage Foundation. So it was that kind of yeah, and you had members of Congress up there on the on the on the you know in the desk up there looking and, down looking at down you. on you right, and so I you know read my my prepared remarks and um, then had to take some questions and uh, I was scared to death, but at a certain point once I got past the prepared remarks then I was I was okay because it was like more like sparring like yeah I'll answer the question that's fine, but no I you know I, my feeling is that you know I can't separate the fact that I'm a citizen, I'm a restaurant owner, I'm a businessman, I'm a father, I can't separate those. So I can't put them into silos and just say, well, today I'll be a chef. And tomorrow, well, tomorrow I'll go talk about hunger. But I, I, want, to, I don't want to mix those two. I, I can't. I'm a public person, so it's impossible to do that. But I wasn't afraid to do it. Um, right. And then what I realized early on, especially I think after the first couple of times, the only way to actually get your message across and to be taken seriously up on the Hill in Congress, you have to keep going back. You can't show up as a celebrity once get your photo op, and then walk away. you got to keep going back. And you have to be conversant in the, in the yeah. details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot less than you think, believe it or not. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like the members- Leave it of, to the aides. The, the, exactly. Yeah. All the aides are the ones who are actually making stuff go, <laughs> go in the country. There's a lot of people behind the scenes writing policy. And, um, but, um, you know, I, the best compliment was from George Miller years later, uh, a couple years ago when he retired- I was up at a, a press conference announcing something else and with him, and he took me aside. He said, you know, Tom, uh, you keep coming back, and we, we notice. You know, thanks. Yeah. And uh, so that was, that was a big compliment. No, I, I don't, I'm not afraid to mix the two, and especially now. Now it's okay. Right. Now, actually, you know, companies are being asked, take a stand. Yeah. And, and uh, so, so, no, it's, I think, it's, it's, I think it's, still, it's, it's relevant. I think I have to do it. There are silos, or there's many strands of who you are, but they're all intertwined. And one of the things you mentioned was being a father. I think for me, I'm a father of two sons as well, and I know you have three sons. Mm -hmm. And especially right now, with a lot of stuff going on, I see a lot of my actions through, you know, they're four and five, so they're younger. They're not looking at me mm -hmm. and wondering whether I'm woke or not. But right, right, like, right. But I am concerned, am I modeling behavior that I want them to model, and am I raising them to be the kind of man that... I admire. You have to have engagement with your kids. I mean, my six-year-old and eight-year-old are saying, you know, after the election, Dad, the bully won. That's not supposed to happen. Yeah. You know, Dad, what what's sexual harassment? Yeah. Like, I, I'm, you know, the news is on, they hear it, and, you know, they're listening to everything. So having to explain this stuff to, to children, and this is like the news. And you, they should be able to watch the news. And so, so yeah, it, 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 you know, things have changed a lot. You did something recently, which I find very um, laudable, uh, you changed the name of your big, splashy restaurant, Fowler & Wells, mm -hmm. to Temple Court. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about why you did that? Going back to Temple Court and Fowler and & Wells. So we opened in the Beekman Hotel. Uh, it's a very historic building. It was built in 1835 and doing a lot of research in the building. And the, and the building that was there subsequent to, to Temple Court, it was a building called Clinton Hall. We were looking at various characters that worked there. Uh, and when it was Clinton Hall, Twain wrote there, Poe wrote there, as a pound wrote there. And uh, so we were trying to. Figure it was like the WeWork. Of yeah, the it was. Time. <laughs> it was. And we, we were trying to figure a way to, to link the name of the of the restaurant to the history of the building, and we found out that that there was a publisher there, two publishers, Fowler and Wells. And part of this is going to sound really stupid, 
But part of it is Coluccio and Sons had just closed. And we always loved the ampersand. You're like, save the ampersand. No, save, save the ampersand, exactly. <laughs> and so, so we were like, Father Wells, oh, it's innocuous. These guys, like, you know. And then we were like, all right. They were publishers of, of psychological books as well as other books. But they also were publishers of phrenology and phrenologists. But back then, a lot of people were phrenologists. And phrenology this, is? This pseudoscience where they thought that the shape of the brain, they thought the brain was, was a series of separate organs. And based on the shape of your head, you can sort of tell various personality traits based on the size and shape and lumps on your head. I mean, the queen of England had her kids' heads red. This was being used for a lot of different things. Employers would use it to, um, to see if certain jobs were, if you were, were, were suited up to certain jobs. And... It was used to try to you know, further this idea of racism and not racism the way that we know it today, but the idea that the African race was a separate race than the human race. Right. Um, but it was also used by abolitionists for the day to prove the opposite because sort of shaped heads that were more Caucasian shaped heads were OK. So so it was used for a lot of reasons, but it was used it was used for racism. We kind of knew it was. But again, it was so debunked. It was like. We're not really taking it serious. We're not really honoring that part of it. Again, it was used for a lot of different things. But what we found out after the review in the New York Times, Pete Wells did a lot of research. And I asked him about this. And I said, did you turn your research department loose on this? He said, no. I stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning because it didn't sit right with me. And we found out that Fowler of the Fowler and Wells was the guy who was furthering the idea of phrenology to further racism. That guy. We named the restaurant after that guy. Big mistake. Yeah. And so immediately after the review, I remember um, walking into the restaurant, Katie Greco, who's been uh, with me for 17 years, and uh, I looked at her, and we both had, like, you know, tears in our eyes. Like, what do we do? And immediately we looked at each other and said, we have to change the name. The other thing that Pete Wells pointed out in the review, that we, we had the most diverse staff that he's ever seen in the restaurant. And we're really proud of that. And we had this conversation with the staff. I apologized and said, we are changing the name. Um, we didn't announce to the public that we were changing the name. We knew it would take a while to do that. But I remember, remember my staff coming up to me who'd worked for us, with us at Clifford and Sons for a bunch of years, and he just took me aside and he said, why? And I was like, not why we changed the name. Why did you, why did you do this? And I said, listen, we, we didn't do enough research. It wasn't purposely done, and we'll take responsibility for it. But then he, he you know, I asked a question to him. I said, me a question. You know, when did you learn about phrenology and, and, and how it was used? He said, we grew up with this. Yeah. And right there, my whiteness was staring me in my face. Growing up, African-American, your parents teach this to you. It's part of their story. It's part story. of their, their, their story. And, you know, being white, this wasn't part of my story. So for me, it was like the pseudoscience that was debunked. For them, this was real. This was serious. I remember one other person said something to me. And it was Questlove. Actually, a, a woman who works for him. You know, he did a, a record called Phrenology. Yeah. And again, I didn't spend enough time understanding his message. And so... I mean, it was it was probably professionally the most embarrassing moment of my career, and uh, but we knew that that we had to we had to address it. Yeah. And uh, it took about eight months to do it, and uh, I think you know turning that embarrassment into something I'm most really proud of, and proud of the way my team handled it, and proud of the fact that we were upfront and honest about it, and 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 proud of the fact that we didn't lose staff members over this. Yeah. That's what I was afraid of. I was afraid of. of I don't want to create an environment where people are no longer comfortable working for me. And that, that was really what we were, were, were pushing up against. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, TLC, and we'll be back right after this. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by TLC. When a teenager gets pregnant, it becomes a family affair. 
TLC's new series, Unexpected, explores the ups and downs of three pregnant teens who are all children of teen mothers themselves. Parents and grandparents must step in and help them through this huge life change. Tensions mount as everyone has conflicting ideas for what is best for the young parents and their baby. Don't miss the revealing new series, Unexpected, Sunday, November 12th at 10, 9 central on TLC and TLC Go. Can't wait until November 12th? You can watch the early premiere starting on Sunday, November 5th with the TLC Go app. Download TLC Go for free from your app store. I'm excited to have you on the show. I'm excited for my, like, I know it sounds crazy because they're little, but for my sons to see guys like you, and even for me as a dad, to be honest, who take stands, you confront your whiteness and you confronted mm-hmm. something you did wrong or thoughtlessly and the insidious consequences. Right. And you sort of, I hate to use the term, but you manned up and you said, okay, I take responsibility. I'm going to change. I don't know if it was thoughtlessly. We just didn't understand the impact that it would have on other people. And I think that's the conversation that we always need to have. What impact are we having? This, this, this boys network that we've created in the restaurant business, you know, there's always that question out there. I had this conversation with my wife who was always reminding me that I need to model good behavior for my children. Um, but, you know, there's always this, this, this conversation about how, why aren't there more women in the industry? Well, why? Because they don't want to work in a shitty environment where they're not respected. And so maybe that's why. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sitting here thinking, I was thinking to myself, you know, what culture did we create in my kitchens? Did we have this culture? I always go back to the Gramercy Tavern days where more than half the women in, in the kitchen were, more than half the people in the kitchen were women. And that was always when I had the best kitchen. But I always started trying to think, like, what have we done? Have we done... And, you know, I know yesterday I had a conversation with one of my chefs who said, no, we just fired someone recently because they made a, a comment that was just outrageous and that we just fired them on the spot. Yeah. So, you know, I think we all need to have this conversation. I mean, I automatically got inundated with John Best better not be on the next season of Top Chef. Well, we already shot that in May and he is. Yeah. And we're doing our best to cut around it. But I think that what I'm trying to get now, uh, you know, the network to do is maybe do a roundtable discussion and discuss this. Get it out in the open. Let's talk about it. Right. Because the only way we're going to really fix this is, number one, to understand the impact. And again, not and my lesson from what happened with Fowler and Wells, the impact of not experiencing life as a woman. How how can I teach my male members and members of my team to be have you know empathy towards that, you know, for that position? Because that's what we're really talking about. You know, how how do you can you understand just by saying something that you think is innocuous, that you think is nothing, is it going to impact someone and it's going to right. impact the way they feel? And maybe they won't say something and maybe it's not overt, but you know what? It is landing on them very differently than it's going to land on someone else. The way I think about I think about this all the time as well is there's a structure, there's a hierarchy and there's a structure. When you're a man and a white man particularly and you're part of the structure and you say something and you're not aware that the structure exists. Right. The first thing is understand that the structure exists. Right. So even though your intention isn't whatever, and maybe your intention is, which is another conversation, but for this right. case, you're just saying something thoughtlessly. Right. If you don't understand that structure, that the the geometry of it, mm-hmm. then you'll never understand why it would be received that way. Right. Personally, you know, there's a list that just went around called Shitty Media Men, which was like this big Google spreadsheet of men in media that had been accused of wrongdoing. Right. You know, it's not public. And I think I'm in this, I think many men, rightfully, are questioning and thinking in their own mind, wait, what have I done? What have I done? And it, one, it's scary, right? But I think that it's kind of the well, point you know, to be scared. Well, it's interesting, that, that Me Too hashtag that's going around, that Alyssa Milano started. Yeah. Um, I think men can look at that too and say, Me Too, what have I done? 
Well, there is a hashtag called Yes I Have. Yes I Have, okay. But I have a problem with that only in the sense that if you have done something that you're seriously ashamed about, parading it on social media and then is expecting accolades for a hashtag Yes right. I Have is problematic. Right, right. Um, or if that's somehow going to you know, absolve, absolve you. Exactly, yeah. absolve you of everything you've done. Yeah, yeah. no, it's like right. a hashtag is not a shield. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, as dads raising sons, the question is, how do we make sure they don't take their privilege for granted? It's a good question. Um, again, I, I think you learn from your mistakes. And, and it's funny, my, my, my wife brought this up last night. And uh, my wife's Jewish. My, my children are being raised Jewish. And so there's a, a, ment- a mentor-type person that we went to to actually teach them Jewish studies, but it's 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 not in a classroom. It's actually pretty cool. And she, where she, is it? It's it's private. The guy does he does you know there's a group of kids in school that we actually got this guy and he takes them out to the park and yeah. Um, it's it's actually pretty neat. And um, ask that question like how are you teaching this? Are, are you covering this this uh, these issues of equality and how are you going to go about it? And he had some some great solutions that really you know kind of looked at the Torah and said take examples of strong women in the Torah and use them as examples and don't just teach that to women to to girls teach that to boys as well right and so teach these stories to boys and, and show them examples of strong women so so they can maybe you know have again empathy and better understanding of of the power that women have and the power that they should have so I think at a young age you just start talking about this and 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 you, you bring it up I mean one thing. You know, we we moved to Brooklyn into a more of a of a it's not a totally gentrified neighborhood because we didn't we weren't comfortable with just having our kids grow up around people that weren't black. Right. You no, know, growing up and all you see in, your, in in the hallways where we, where we were was, is white people. It wasn't it didn't work for us anymore. Um, um, not, so, it, I'm not going to say it's the only reason we moved out there, but it was clearly, you know, discussion in my house that this is what we want to do. Right. Um, so I, so I, part of it is like lessons that you give explicitly, and part of it is just how you raise the your life your life choices. Yeah. Yeah. You have six year old, uh, tw- uh, what's the middle? Six eight and twenty four. Six eight and twenty four. How do you feel like the difference between you raising a twenty four year old and a? Tell me about the difference between raising a twenty four year old. And as you know, the well, younger two. Right. When when my when my son Dante was was young, I mean, he his mom and I split up. And, he's the old. He's yeah, the oldest. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, I was traveling a lot more. I was a, a lot busier. The time wasn't my time. It was you know, he was two. I think when I opened Gramercy, and I was literally I was there six days a week. You know, from from ten in the morning until one o'clock at night, and so I didn't nearly have as much downtime as I do right now with the younger guys. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, it, 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 it bothers me. I think about it and, and, uh, it's definitely a, mu- a much more difficult time to raise children. But I also see again, how many as a father, you know, did I, did I prioritize that? And that's probably what I should have done. And again, Do you feel like the industry, like I talk to a lot of, sh- you know, chefs as you know, and it's like, you, first of all, your hours are kind of crazy and they're going to be crazy. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, that's how dinner works. But can you be a chef or a cook or a comey or, you know, whatever, and be a good and present father? Or is, if you want to, is this not the job for you? But again, that's part of the culture that needs to change in restaurants. This idea that, that you have to spend, you know, every hour of your waking life dedicated to that is something we need to, we need to look at. I mean, yeah. this is par- also part of the reason why a lot of women drop out of the restaurant business, because when it comes time to have children, they're like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work, you know, 80 hours a week. And it's not because they're weak, because they they want to spend more time at home. But they we have a healthy we, understanding of work life. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, to, to take the wrong way. But if you think about the two of the chefs who, who were probably the, you know, the, the, the biggest 
biggest names sort of did the most um, in one in America, one in Spain. I mean, you know, I think of Ferran Andrea and Thomas Keller, right? Both not married, both no children. Yeah. I, mean, I think Ferran's married now. So, you know, when I got to a certain age, especially when I had the, the six and eight-year-old, it's like, I'm not working nights anymore. I'm not, you know, I'm there occasionally, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to work, you know, all night long when they wake up in the morning to go to school, when I have an hour before they go out to school and I'm crashed out in bed because I worked until one o'clock. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that life anymore. So, but I've come along in my career and I can get, I can do that. The thing that always bugs me about the dynamic is thinking of the voices that you don't hear or none of the voice of the food you like, think of all the food you don't eat because they eat, people were either burned out from the job or they decided that they didn't want to pursue this. Mm-hmm. And and it's just a vast world of experiences we'll never experience. Food we'll never right. eat, you know? You know, something, something's got to give. Um, and I think, I think you know, seeing what happened with, with, with John Besh, um, I think it was a big, it's a big wake-up call because, I mean, I, I suspect there's going to be more. Um, yeah. But I think, I think that we all need to get together and say, you know, how are we going to address this? How are we going to make, you know, women more comfortable here? And this bullshit, you know, with just toughen up, you know, yeah. it's, it's part of, it's just the way it is. No, it's not the way it is. I, I think we're, we, we're going to need to address this. We're going to need to address this on a large scale. And, and, um, and, and I think it has to go a lot further. The first thing I did is I went to my HR director. I have one of them, you know, my, my COO and said, you know, let's make sure our policies are right. And our policies are right. We have a clear uh, communication line. If someone wants to go over the head of their manager, their right. general manager, they can go directly to HR. That's all spelled out in a manual. But you know what? That's all well and good, and that may keep me from getting in trouble. But we still need to address the cultures that we've created in in the entire business, and, yeah. and you know, stop pretending it's not happening. And even think that well, maybe it's better than it was thirty years ago. Well, when I was coming up, it was rougher. Yeah, all right, great. That doesn't right. make it better now. Right. It doesn't make right. it perfect. Let's do this questionnaire. Sure. Okay. It starts off easy. Gets a little more intense. What is your name? Tom Colicchio. Thomas uh, Patrick Jason Colicchio. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Occupation? Uh, chef, restaurateur, and food activist. Age? 55. How old are your children? 6, 8, 24. What are their names? Matteo, Luca, and Dante, going from youngest to oldest. Are they named after anyone in particular? Mm, yes and no. Um... Dante was named, not, I, you know, it's funny. I have an Uncle Don, my grandfather's brother. He was always my Uncle Don. Yeah. And when we named Dante Dante, his name is Dante Sebastian. I just like the name. I wanted something that sounded Italian, but, you know. So when I named him Dante, my, my Uncle Don said, I can't believe you named your son after me. And I said, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I guess it is Dante. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Just never so, look at it spelled. Right, right. But, um, but you know, he was Dante, um, but he was always Uncle Don. Um, but... Um, and then uh, Matteo. Wait, 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 wait. D O N T E. No, D A. Yeah, like Dante right. Alighieri. But, but my, right, my uncle Don. He was always Uncle Don, but it was never spelled right. We didn't look at the spelling. Yeah, yeah. Uncle Don. So anyway, and then um, Matteo and Luca, they were initials were were used in someone who passed away, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and that we wanted to honor. Yeah, Luca Bodhi, his initial L for Lenore, who's a my wife's. Aunt, I guess, who passed away in a, in a car accident. What's the deal with uh, Bodhi? Uh, I don't know. My, um, you know, I'm not sure. I got to talk to my wife about that. But Bodhi, <laughs> Bodhi was something that she just she liked the name and you know the, the Bodhi tree. The, yeah, yeah. She, so yeah, so she 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 thought that 
It's a nice. Yeah, she has a, she had more spirituality around naming our children than I did. I feel like, yeah, sure, cool okay, names. I yeah. like that. Yeah. Do you have any cute nicknames for your kids? Yeah, right. Well, they, you know, they always change. Yeah. Um, Dante, when he was a kid, when he was young, it was Little Bear, and then it was Bear, and so that was that was kind of there. Luca, right now, I'm calling him Fuzzy Head, our Spooky. So it's Luki. That's very Lukey, Halloween appropriate. Luki turned the spooky, and he's got really kind of fuzzy hair, so I call him Fuzzy Head. And uh, Mateo, I'm calling Shmeo these days. Uh, <laughs> Let's see how long that Shmeo. one lasts. Yeah. How uh, lo- How old with the 24 year old? Do you, is 24 too old for nicknames or no? Good question. Probably not, but I, I don't. You gotta I don't ask have him. Right now. Yeah, I don't have. <laughs> uh, what do they call you? Dad. Dad. <laughs> yeah. Do they have any cute nicknames for you? I don't think so. Not that they tell Every you. now and then, Mateo, the youngster, just calls me Tom. I'm like, where's that from? <laughs> Stop that. Yeah. How often do you see them? Uh, the two little guys, if I'm not traveling every day. And Dante right now, probably you know, once a week or so. Um, Does he live in the city? He lives in the city, yeah. He, he's, he's bartending. He's like gotten to this whole mixology thing. And oh, they, it's, like his, it's his thing. There you yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> Does he have a? He doesn't have a vest. Does he have a yeah, vest? Sure, he does. <laughs> you can't yeah. be a mixologist without that. Yeah, event. yeah. Describe yourself as a father in three words. Oh God, um, in three words. Uh, you know, I guess because of of traveling and stuff. You know, and and what comes to mind is not good enough. Oof. Yeah. Well, if you. Described yourself in two Those words. Are three words. <laughs> if you described yourself in two words, you'd be good enough. Yeah, but it's it's you know it's it, it's that struggle. It's like I want to spend more time with them. It's 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 hard to do. You know, um, you know, on a Saturday morning I'm pretty tired and they're up and running and so it's it's you know it just it's always I guess part of it's trying to be better. I mean, so maybe that's it. Trying to be a better parent. It's, it's something that I'm, trying I'm to about. be better. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Describe your father in three words. Yeah, that's intense. that's hard. Um, I mean, my father passed away twenty eight years ago. Um, if I describe him right now, it's just you know, I miss the hell out of him. Uh, yeah, you know when I just think that he's never he's never met my children. Um, that's that's a tough one. Uh, um, yeah. Growing up, though, you said he was encouraged. He. Yeah, I mean, again, my, my my dad was funny. He was sometimes distant, and you know, the the funny thing, my my dad died when he was fifty two. I was, uh, I think, twenty six, and we were just getting to the point where, and my brothers and I talk about this, where we were able to have adult conversations with him, and we didn't have those deep conversations when we were a kid. You know, I would, I quite frankly, so I was a swimmer, and in the winter, my my dad on a Saturday morning would get up early and it was early swim practice, and I'd have to get in the car and I would dread that period because we had nothing to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, but he was, you know, he was, he was always there for us. I mean, if we were doing, if we were, you know, doing something with sports or, you know, uh, he was, he was there, he but just, he wasn't emotionally there. Right. And that's the hard part. He was always physically there for us, but not, not emotionally there. I imagine that part of the feeling, I know I would like to be able to share being a dad the feeling of being a dad with my dad right and not having a dad to be able to share that aspect of you yeah yeah i mean you know part of it is is he he passed away just when i took my first chef's job in new york and was my, that unexpected my, or? my brother i think oh, he had lung cancer yeah and my my brother i don't think was coaching yet and so 
you know, you think about it and say, my brother's not do this all the time. My brother wins a state championship, and it's like, Dad would have loved it in here. Yeah. Um, you know, when I opened a restaurant and got a great review, the first one, it was like, Dad should have seen this. And so that's, that's, that's it's hard. It's yeah. hard losing a parent that my, my mom's still alive. And, and uh, um, but that's, that's the hard part is, is you want it, you, you know, your, your parents want you, and I, I know as a parent, what I want is just what's best for my son and want them to grow, to be, you know, be secure and be happy. And, and I think it would have been good for him to say, hey, damn, Dad, you, you, maybe we didn't have those conversations. Maybe emotionally you weren't there, but you did something right because we all turned out okay. Yeah. yeah. It's reassuring. Yeah. You did a good job. Yeah. You did a good job. Yeah. What are your strengths as a father? Um, that's stuff I, I hate talking about myself. Um, uh, told you it got intense. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is stuff. Um, strengths, um, you know, I think I could be goofy and fun and have a good time. I'm, you know, I, I am the stricter parent, um, without a doubt, and I'm, I'm fine, I'm happy to play that role. Did, um, doing Top Chef and being a judge in that sense, did that help you be a dis- disciplinary <laughs> no, no, now? No, 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 no. Oh God, no. no! No, no crossover. No, not at all. No. Um, Fun loving, I'll take. Yeah, yeah. Ding ding um, ding. Yeah, I mean, but but no, we we have we have a good time. You know, my kids are crazy. They're nuts. They're they're two boys. Just, they love each other, but they beat the hell out of each other yep. all day long. And and you know, I play a referee. And what are your weaknesses as a father? Um, I would say probably not engaging as much as I should. You know, not always being available. Yeah. Um, a lot of times I'm just, you know, just check out and I'm, you know, part of it is 55, I, can't, I don't have the energy I used to have, but, you know, part of not, not being available and you know, checking out mentally, I think, I think that's, that's, uh, you know, you're kind of there, but you're not. And, yeah. you know, I have the same yeah. thing where I feel like the kid is there in my mind, half of it is like, ah, this is endless. Yeah. And then the other half is saying, no, take every moment. Yeah, you know, I go through it all the time. It's like, you know, ah, they'll be, I'll, you know, yeah, we'll do that tomorrow, whatever. And then there are times I'm frightened and go, Jesus, you know, I, I should just, you know, want to live every minute because they may not be there. I may not be here or whatever, but yeah. and I'm not going to have this moment again because they're going to change. And so, yeah, it's it's tough. Um, you know, I think for, for my, my older son where it's tough is that, you know, it's 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 sometimes hard to connect. He has a life now, um, and I I feel him reaching out to me, and it's always hard to connect. Um, so it's you know that's that's so I'm, I have it from both sides. I have an older child who needs something very. I mean, he's a young man who needs something very different. Yeah. And so uh, it's it's really try to be available. And, what do you and, think you know, he in a, needs? In a, in a way, at this point, he he wants me as a, as a buddy, as a friend, and he wants companionship and. and yeah and a, a closeness and you know i think perhaps this is turn into like a, a shrink uh, session um you know perhaps um because i was so busy being a chef when i was young you know i missed out on family things and stuff i was just you know i used to work 80 90 hours a week and even before i was a chef it's a, as a cook as a sous chef and so you miss out on stuff as you get older it's like you know what i need to start enjoying life and so there's almost this this thing where you feel like you know I, there's things I want to do and um, you end up being selfish. Yeah. Um, because you want to take time for yourself, and it, it's hard at my age to you know at this point I, I didn't think I'd have young children. And I thought you know my 24 year old wouldn't need me at this point. Well, they do. Yeah. They always will. And you know I, I should know this because I miss my father and think you know I need him as, as a 55 year old. Of course my 24 year old needs 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 me, but. Um, 
it's it's part of just making that decision, saying, you know what, this isn't about me, and I need to, you know, it was interesting the other day, tickets to the Jets game. I don't care to watch football. It's just something I don't, I don't care to do. My son is a diehard Patriots fan. Oh. The Patriots are playing the Jets. Why the Patriots? And so I said, I have tickets. I said, here, take them. He goes, well, you're not going? He goes, no, I'll invite my friends. I was like, okay, go. You invite your, you know, three friends, and I don't need to go. And they called me up like a week before the game and said, are you coming? And I was like, no, I thought you were going with your friends. And I thought, he wants me to go with him. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going like, what are <laughs> being so stupid about this? And so we went, and, and uh, we had we had a great time. I took my took Luca, um, who was very funny, sitting there going, "This is really great, Dad, but I have no idea what's happening here." <laughs> and and my son's girlfriend, we had a great time. And uh, so, but it's it's again, it's 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 like picking up on the cue of like, oh yeah, that's what you're yeah yeah yeah. And and but also this this idea that you know I'm being selfish because I'm not reaching out and spending the time I should because it's you know for me. I want to go, you know, fishing, you know, tomorrow. Yeah. And because that was the option. Like, I can go fishing on Sunday or I can spend time with him at a, at a football game. I don't want to be at the football game, but do I not want to be with him? Of course I do. Yeah. Well, you have three kids of, a different, of different ranges, but what is your favorite activity to do with your kids? That's your special dad and kid thing. Well, I, I wish they would all come fishing more. My, my young guy's like <laughs> two hours and they're like, yeah, I'm done. Um, da- two hours da- is pretty good. Yeah, Dante's like, he's like, hey, dad, I want to go fishing. I want to fish, so it's good. But you know, so that that would be my my, you know. Where do you guys fish? Um, we have a place out in Long Island, on the North Fork. So the boats there, so um, out there. Occasionally they'll come out in the garden when I'm working the garden. They'll come out and like, "Hey, what can I pick, Dad?" And you're like, "Yes, pick this. yeah, it's all good." And the inside um, of yourself is going, "Yes, yes, yes." Yeah, um, we're instituting a new policy in the house on Saturday. Uh, my wife finally like said, "We got to do this. No technology Saturday." No computers for you too. Yeah. Okay. And and so listen, I said I have to have the phone near me in case there's an emergency somewhere I need to answer. But it's like fine. We'll put a, we'll put the phones down. We'll put computers down. We'll put technology down, and we're just gonna yeah hang. We tried to do that. We had got a little like charging station that we plug everything into when you come home. But now the problem is we all just kind of like huddle around the charging station. To no, try. no, no. The, the idea, like the, the kids don't have phones, and so but they'll, they'll you know, they want to watch TV and they yeah. want to play video games. And but it's like Saturday's going to be the no. I'm sure the we're going to. I'm sure we're going to get a, a lot of pushback when we tell the kids <laughs> yeah. that you, you can't do <laughs> Kelly it. Kelly is saying two weeks, two yeah, weeks, two weeks. We'll see. What has been the moment that you've been most proud of as a parent, and why? I mean, all in birth, really. I mean, watching your kids, you know, when they're when they're first born, it's it's a proud moment. You know, it's 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 small moments when you see your kid do something that's kind. Um, my son Luca has a huge heart, and just you know, he'll say things. He did something the other day. He had to fill out this this paper, and it was like you know, why and what something like that. And it was a whole it was a few questions, and the last one was, who do you love? And it was, I love my mommy and daddy because they feed me. It's <laughs> 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 like. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's those moments when you see your kids, you know, do, doing, you know, this, this random act of kindness. And it's just like, great. It's like, all right, you know, maybe we're getting, maybe we are raising them, right? Yeah. Um, so that that's, you know, those are those are the small little moments where we're proud and of. And feeding them. Yeah, and feeding them. Also yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. What heirloom did your father leave you or give you, if any? Oh, God. I don't, I don't think there's, he didn't. And there were things that we ended up with. Um uh, a ring that he always wore that I think my brother has now. It was mine, but I think it disappeared, and I think he has it. Um, but uh, nothing I can think of. What heirloom do you want to leave to your children, if any? 
heirloom? I don't know. I'm not an heirloom. <laughs> That's not actually, you know, I'm sure it's going to be knives or something like that um, that they're going to want. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, not necessarily an heirloom, but, you know, the house that we have on Long Island is a special place, you know, for me. And, you know, I hope that it could stay in the family and, they, you know, always keep it and they can you, know, yes. you know, share it. So maybe And the garden. There. And the garden that's there, yeah. But I, I don't know. It's, 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 I, I'm not, I don't, I don't collect stuff. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I have a bunch of guitars that are, you know, worth <laughs> keeping and having. I don't know if they want them. I certainly would pass it down to them, but I, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't think in, in terms of things that I, I have to have or can't be without. Describe the dad special for dinner. Now, I will say that for most of these questionnaires that we do, the dad special for dinner is always like Ken Burns's was like grilled chicken thighs, but right. mostly it's like uh, grilled chicken thighs. <laughs> That's uh, what I do. <laughs> um, you know, one pot broccoli and pasta is a, is a is a hit. Chicken soup is a hit. My Luca all of a sudden just loves ramen. He just wants ramen. So, like the rest of New York. Yeah, I guess so. he moved to Brooklyn <laughs> I guess, and loves yeah, ramen. I guess so. So, I mean, that's see, to me, that's not a fair, I mean, everything. It's, there's no one go to. It's yeah. whatever. Well, um, you're a chef. Yeah. There's you're no. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask this one. You're also a musician. No. Ish. Try. Yeah. You have guitars. Yeah. What is your. Do you have a go to song that you play with for them or with oh, them? No, 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 no. Do they play music? In school, they have music class. Yeah. But no, yeah. they don't play. They don't play an instrument. Yeah. No, there's no there's no one go to song. There's no silly song that I I play that they're like they play that one, Dad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are you religious and are you raising your children in that tradition? I would not. I'm not. I grew up Catholic. Um, I would say I'm I'm not religious, but I I do consider myself spiritual, which is difficult. My my wife is Jewish. Um, we are raising our children Jewish, but I won't. And when when the rabbi that married us, this was interesting because there was this question about. You know, when when we were living together, I, I would put a tree up. She said, if we're going to have children, I don't want a Christmas tree there. And the rabbi said, why not? She said, well, growing up Jewish, like we kind of laughed at the Jewish families had Christmas trees. I can't do that. She said, well, you're marrying someone who's not Jewish. So the question I have is, what are you doing? What do you plan on doing? She said, do, 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 do Shabbat on Friday? She's like, well, no. She said, maybe you should start doing that. Like, what are you afraid of? Right. And um, so we do now. Um, and, and you know, I try to get home for it and, uh, it comes in spurts. We'll do it like three weeks in a row and then all of a sudden we kind of, for some reason it doesn't happen. And, yeah. but, um, so it really, it, so, so again, we, we are raising our kids to be spiritual. We are trying to, to raise them to know that there's something greater than you. Right. Um, and, 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 uh, but you know, for me, it was always hard to understand Judaism. Um, because for me, I was Italian American that was Catholic but when you're Jewish, you're Jewish. It's your religion, it's your identity, it's your culture, it's all one and the same. And it was always hard for me to, to understand that because that wasn't my experience. Right. Um, and, and now I do. It's, it's much easier to, to understand. Um, but we're, we're raising our kids to, to be good citizens. And so to me, there's a spirituality involved with that. Um, well, when but, you think of something greater than yourself, it's like, what form does it take? Right. Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah. What is a mistake you made growing up that you want to ensure your children do not repeat? Mistake I had growing up, um, not not too much mistake because I, I really couldn't help myself. And something we're actually dealing with now with one one child, clearly knowing what I know now, had ADHD, um, couldn't focus. I mean, I was one of those typical you know kids they'd look at and say your IQs because I was tested. Your IQs off the charts. Why aren't you performing? Why are you a C student? And I would act out. I would get in trouble. I was a trouble kid. 
So not repeating that mistake with my children now, one child clearly was diagnosed and so dealing with, with his issue, um, no one dealt with it when I was a kid. And that right. was a huge mistake. You're just because, marked as because, trouble. Because I, no, no, it was marked in trouble, but I would sit there and say, why can't I understand algebra? Like, I, I should be able to do this. This should be easy. Um, but I couldn't quite figure it out. I couldn't, and to this day, I can't write. Right. Because I can't, and my wife does a lot of research and brain research, and there is something where you can't get thoughts out of your head and on paper. You can't physically write. So I, I can't. I have a hard time with it. I can, you know, this morning I had to give a, a, a speech. I can sit up there and give a speech, and it's fine. If I had to write that speech, I could not write it. Yeah. And so anything out there that you see written, it comes from me. It comes from my <laughs> wife. We'll talk about it. We'll discuss it. We'll, you know, have very various um, versions of it, and we'll... we'll so Just making not, sure not that re- your kids... Yeah, not repeating, like, you know, dealing with those issues. Yeah. Because, again, back then, number one, it wasn't dealt with. But even if it was, I think, you know, it may have been swept under the rug. Like, oh, well, he's, you know, it's, it's okay. Let's not talk about it. Yeah. So it's just not repeating that mistake. And, yeah. How do you make sure your kids know you love them beyond you saying it? I was going to, you know, I think, I think saying it is important. I think, I think telling them is important. I think uh, showing them that I love their mom, at least for Luke and Mateo. Um, I think that's that's important. Showing that you have empathy for other people outside of the family is important as well. And I think things that they care about, somehow you're going to, even if you don't. Do I care about Dungeons and Dragons? No. But to Luca right now, like he just, it's all he wants to do. So yeah. I got to, like, you know, I got to. You got to bone up. I got to bone up and say, all right, I, I, you know, if that's his interest, you know, I need to. Yeah, to be interested. Like in I'm, well. I know so much about Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, and right. um, PJ Masks. Right, because that's what my kids are into. Right, right, right. But but just kind of you know showing like this is what they're interested in, so I should take an interest in that. Yeah. Well, Tom, this uh, thank you very much. <laughs> it went a lot of places, and I'm glad we ended up here. Yeah, I feel like I should make an appointment for next week. You know, I, yeah, I mean, you're welcome back like, anytime. Wow, we're in network. 50, so 55 uh, minute hour now. Jeez, God. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, we're in network, so if yeah. you want to file, cool. We'll reimburse. Thank yeah. you so much, Tom. Thanks. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, ADT, and we'll be back with more Fatherly Podcast after the break. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by ADT. Home isn't just a place. It's a feeling. The feeling that you're safe to enjoy the things that matter most. ADT lets you take that feeling with you wherever you go. Whether you are at your house, your business, or online, ADT helps keep you safe and secure with security systems, home automation, alarms, and surveillance, so you can feel at home wherever you are. Not sure where to start? Try the new ADT Security Starter Kit for only $49, including professional installation. Learn more at ADT.com. ADT. Home safe home. And now for what they call the small print. Let me bump this up to 12 point. 36-month monitoring contract required. Enrollment in QSP and EasyPay required. Only in select markets. Done. So that's it for security. Now back to my own insecurities with the Fatherly Podcast. And now it's time to welcome back Josh Krish to the studio for a segment we call Oh Hey Science. We all want to raise good, kind kids. At least I hope we do. And I'm pretty convinced, or at least I hope I am, that humans are basically and fundamentally good. So the question is more of shepherding than transforming. Nevertheless, how to get from point A, a mewling infant, to point B, a caring adult, is a seemingly Herculean, perhaps Sisyphean, and no doubt titanic task of fatherhood. Some of it we do on our own through modeling our own behavior. Much of it we do by providing for our children to the extent that we can role models. That's a topic for today's Oh Hey Science. 
where we talk to science in the person of our amply bearded science editor, Josh Krish, about facts of matter and matter of facts. Today's topic is role models. Josh, the other day you were telling me about a controversial study about who we hold as role models. It made me, to say the least, uneasy. Describe the study that you were telling me about. I'm sorry it made you uneasy. It's okay. Okay, as long as everybody feels safe here. It's a safe space. Go on. (laughs) Yeah, it's the Bobo Doll study. It's one of my favorites. So they took a bunch of kids, a bunch of boys and a bunch of girls, little kids, and they brought them into a room and they let them watch adults beat the living crap out of these big inflatable Bobo dolls. Bobo dolls are big inflatable dolls. They look like bowling pins. They're like clown bowling pins. You wouldn't feel terribly bad if you beat it up, but they told the adults to like really go at it. So the adults would sit on their face, they would punch them, they would say nasty things to them. They like verbally abused the Bobo dolls. And each adult did it slightly differently, and they recorded how the adults did it, the male adults and the female adults. And then they brought little kids into the room and let them also beat the crap out of Bobo dolls. Well, the kids watched the video. Right, so the kids knew what the adults had done. They knew what all the adults had done. But when they went into the room, and it was their turn to beat up the Bobo dolls, the boys did almost exactly what the men had done. They used the same vulgarities. They punched the Bobo doll in the same locations as the men. And the little girls did it the same way that the older women had. There wasn't really a cross-gender influence. The thing that's a little bit uncomfortable about the study that you mentioned is that the basic outcome is that it seems that little boys don't mimic older women, and it seems that little girls don't mimic older men. So that's a rough implication for dads. You would imagine that might mean that your daughters might not really look up to you or might not emulate you. It might be a rough implication for kids in a a classroom where their teacher is not the same gender as them. It implies that when we look for role models, we look for people who are basically like us. I mean, I also think it's a rough implication for society in general. If we're trying to raise a less patriarchal society, that boys will not be looking at women as role models. Certainly, it's not good if you want boys to look at women as role models. I mean, obviously, the opposite effect happened with girls. So what it really shows is that our push toward diverse role models, the idea that we should have more diverse role models in the classroom and in our children's lives, it's a great idea. It shows that it might not necessarily work. When you mentioned diversity, obviously we're talking about a gender breakdown now. Have there been studies similarly about, I guess, race is the other big one? Not in the same way. There weren't a whole lot of studies that involved direct mimicry when it came to race, but there have been studies about how kids perceive themselves and their role models relative to their races. And it actually has some pretty tragic outcomes, that particular study that I'm thinking of. One study found that a group of young white kids and a group of young black kids only mimicked the behavior of older white people. And when they tried to figure out why, the main conclusion of the study was that it's not necessarily that we mimic people who look like us, it's that we mimic people that society has told us are good. So everybody in this classroom, the black kids and the white kids, had both been told that it was better to be white. Obviously, they had been told this subliminally, but this was the messaging they got. So even the the white kids followed people who looked like them, and the black kids followed like people who were idolized versions of what they wished they looked like. This reminds me a little bit of the study about the dolls, right? That um, young African-American children, girls particularly, thought that dolls with darker skin were less attractive and less virtuous, I guess, not That's my word, not theirs. That's a great point. These are tragic studies. Um, these particular studies show us that it might not be that people copy people who look like them. It might be that they copy people who they have been told are the ideal. Now, when you're dealing in a single race, let's say we're talking all white kids right now, it's understandable the average little boy thinks it's better to be a man, and the average little girl might imagine that it's better to be a woman. So if the whole theory is that idealization is what you want to be, I want to be like what I think the best version of me could be, then that's not terribly tragic. That's just a reality of being a little boy or a little girl. 
But if society is telling kids that there's a certain ideal man and a certain ideal woman, and it doesn't necessarily look like them, we can imagine that could have long-term negative outcomes for these kids. Obviously not to dismiss the tragic implications of what we were just talking about, but there was another study I wanted you to mention about the kind of the life and death consequences of role modeling. Yeah, it's one of my favorite studies. It's the traffic light study. So the traffic lights that have little figures on them, like the green person walking that says go and the red person that says stop, they're, they're even in America, I believe, they're called by their German name, which I will never pronounce correctly, but it's something like Ampelmenschen. 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 Like you mention it amply. Yeah, amply mentioned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, I said, I said little people on the signs, but the truth is they're not little people. They're little men. There's a little green man that says go and a little red man that says stop. Somebody did a study to see how quickly women reacted to these signs relative to men. So, you know, you're about to cross the street, your head's somewhere else, and a big red man pops up on the screen. You immediately stop. They wanted to see if women also immediately stop. And the study found they don't. They stop a little bit slower than men, a couple fractions of a second slower. But these are fractions of a second that in a busy intersection can be the difference between life and death. Just to reiterate then, the main implication of the study was that men, when they see a little man on the sign, they react to it. Women don't necessarily model that behavior unless it looks like a woman. In some countries, they've then taken that and replaced some of the signs with female signs specifically to combat this problem. I believe they did that in Australia as a, as a trial to see if it helped. And? They don't know yet. <laughs> Sorry, you asked me too early. I'll let you know if fewer women die in Australia in our follow-up session. Obviously, particularly the first finding has a ton of difficult questions for parents trying to raise their children with role models. For instance, my son is a white male. Does that mean he only has white male role models? If I had a daughter, would it only be women? I value diversity, and I think many parents do. Does that mean that the diverse group of individuals with whom my son comes in contact can't be role models? Absolutely not, because you got to look at effect size. So these studies are interesting because they're finding that children are slightly more attuned to people who look like them, and we have to put that on one end of the scale. But let's take a look at the other end of the scale. What's lost by not having diverse role models? And there have been literally thousands of studies on the value of having diverse role models in children's lives. When you weigh the benefits here for your children from having diverse role models against the slight disadvantage that they may not emulate them perfectly because they don't look like them, it's just an easy decision to make. You obviously want the diverse role models. What you're saying is just because they might be the most effective role models doesn't mean they should be the only role models. Right. You could only say that if they were the only effective role models, but that's not what the studies show. The studies show that a role model that looks like you is slightly more effective sometimes for certain populations than another role model. When you put that up against the benefits of being around people who aren't like you, which are myriad, it's really not up for debate. Obviously, you want diverse role models. To your point on role models that look like the child, no one looks like my child as much as I do. Does that mean parents are the most effective role model? It's exactly what it means. We like to pawn off this responsibility on other people, and we like to imagine that our kids are going to develop good role models from their sports heroes, people they see on TV or teachers. That's really not the truth, though. Look at the studies. You'll find that at the end of the day, every child, barring a really bad situation, their main role model is their mom and dad, is their parents or their guardians, the people who they are spend most of their time with. They're active adults. It's not the kind of thing that you can abdicate responsibility from. Your kid is going to look up to you mainly because you spend the most time with them, but also because you look a lot like them. This is what they imagine themselves being as adults. And you can't put that on anybody else, not on diverse role models or non-diverse role models. At the end of the day, what a father does is what his son is going to emulate, and his daughter too.
Well, that's a good place to leave it for, oh, hey, signs. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Joshua. So we talk a lot about children on this podcast, but we don't always hear from children. So every couple of episodes, I try to actually have a conversation with a kid. If you have a kid, by the way, who is either a great conversationalist or has killer jokes, get in touch. My email is jds at fatherly.com, and we'll try to get them on the air. This week, I talked to a little girl named Sadie who lives in Virginia. Hey, Sadie. Hi. This is Joshua David Stein. How are you? Good. How old are you, and where's home? I am seven um, in Bumpus, Virginia. Sadie, one of the things I've been told about you is that you are a big fan of country music. Yes. Who are your favorite artists? Luke Bryan. Yeah? What song of his do you like? All of them. I want five beauty pageants. Five beauty pageants? Yes. Tell me about the first one you won. I was four years old. Wore a pink dress. What is your talent? I just wave and blow kisses. You know, (laughs) waving and blowing kisses, I think that is a talent. I was in a parade. (laughs) I go bow hunting with my mom. Where do you guys hunt? Mom, are you there? Yes. <laughs> yeah, what's it like going bow hunting with Sadie? Uh, it's hard to keep her quiet. <laughs> <laughs> she likes to laugh and giggle and play on my phone. So, Sadie, where do you hunt? My papa's. That's where I hunt. What kind of things do you hunt? Um, deers, turkey. What is the most fun animal to hunt? Deer. Why? Because we eat him. Are deer delicious? Yes! <laughs> Each week on the Fatherly Podcast, we're going to endorse something that we feel passionate about. One week it was shoes, one week it's a book. Now it's an experience. This week, the Fatherly endorsement is hang out with your high school friends. My name is Joshua David Stein, and I'm super serious and charming. But growing up just outside of Philadelphia, I was just Josh Stein, little Josh Stein of Abington High School, whose face was a burnished red from overuse of oxy-acne cleansing pads, and who thought it was cool to wear a rotation of pastel-colored turtlenecks every day of the week. You can see why I hate to be called Josh and be reminded of who I was then. That's one reason when I left high school I never looked back, I never went back, I didn't keep in touch with hardly anyone. Well, now I'm 36 years old, 20 years out from my senior year, and the other day I had dinner with three of my high school friends. Shout out to Kate Lessa, Kate Lowe, and Johnny Eckel, and to Cafe Mogador in the East Village. Their roasted halloumi cheese, still great after all these years. I'm the only one of us who is married and with kids, and I'm also the one who strayed the farthest before coming back into the fold of friendship. And I can say to be around people who liked me then when I didn't like myself was immensely healing. I mean, it was fun. We didn't just sit around, hug, and weep. No, we drank a lot and talked about people we knew and where we were now and what happened that one time driving down the shore with Kate Lowe. And I could see my focus on my current trip of obligation and worry, this heaviness which is also joyful, expand to include the lightness of my youth. Just to be seen again by people who saw me then, to be known again by people who knew me then, lit up parts of me long dulled. And when I got home that night, way past the kids' bedtime, I kissed their little foreheads not only as her dad, 
but to something much more whole, as Dad, as Joshua, and as Josh. So the fatherly endorsement this week, hang out with your high school friends. Today's show was produced by Kelly Kramer. The theme music is by Kyle Forrester, with vocals by Augie Heerenstein. Special thanks to Josh Krish, Andrew Berman, and the rest of the team at Fatherly. For more Fatherly content, follow us on Facebook at FatherlyHQ. For my random thoughts on life, poor usage of hashtags, and mildly witty dad jokes, follow me on Twitter at FakeJoshStein. Be sure to subscribe to the Fatherly Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned for updates on upcoming episodes.